February 17, 1872, 7.30 a.m. Three Catholic priests stepped out of the chapel outside Intramuros where they had been imprisoned. Accompanied by soldiers armed with bayonets and their confessors, they slowly marched into the walled city of Intramuros. One of the three was the 35-year-old Father Jose Burgos. Just two years before, he was at the vanguard of the reformist movement within the Catholic Church, fighting for the rights of Filipino priests. Now he marches, pale as a ghost. The oldest among them was Father Mariano Gomez, who was 72. Once upon a time, he and Father Pedro Pelaez spearheaded the fight for the Philippines' parishes to be returned to the secular priests, who were almost all natives. Though he had been mostly out of politics since then, his work was continued by Father Burgos. On Gomez's face could be seen hints of anger and desperation. The third priest was Father Jacinto Zamora, 36 years old. He was a member of the liberal group, the Reformist Committee, alongside his compatriot, Father Burgos. Just like the others, there was no trace of joy in Zamora's face. Dressed in civilian clothing, the three priests marched to Bagumbayan Square in Manila, known today as Luneta. There, they were to be executed by Garote in front of a large crowd. The crime? Their alleged involvement in the mutiny staged by native soldiers in the province of Cavite the previous month. It was an event that would have unforeseen consequences in the Spanish Philippines. This is Philippine History Z. In 1871, when the government in Spain finally chose Amadeo of Savoy as its new king, he called back the Liberal Governor General of the Philippines, Carlos de la Torre, and replaced him with Rafael de Izquierdo. Though he was a liberal in Spain, Izquierdo believed that governing the Philippines was impossible without a firmer hand and a brush of despotism and authoritarianism. It did not take long for Izquierdo to dismantle the reforms put in place by his predecessor. He abolished freedom of speech and fired most of the natives and mestizos serving in high-ranking government and military posts. He also abolished the tribute exemption privilege that Indian soldiers had enjoyed for years. Now, not only did they have to pay tribute, they also had to participate in polo services as well. A fair and just reward for risking their lives for the Spanish crown. There is no doubt that much of the native and mestizo population in the country hated the sudden authoritarian shift of the government. It was only a matter of time before everything blew up like a powder keg. In early January 1872, the government started receiving anonymous warnings of a possible revolt. The author, who used the pseudonym, a friend of the Spaniards, 
wrote that the rebels were planning to kill all the Spaniards in Manila, including the friars. Since things had been calm at the time, the government simply ignored these warnings. Things would change, however, on the fateful night of January 20. In the Manila suburb of Sampaloc, a festival was held celebrating the feast day of the Virgin of Loreto. Houses hosted dances, all sorts of fine cuisine covered the tables, people were chatting with each other, and maybe even hooking up. It was basically the 19th century Filipino equivalent of a block party. There was also a fireworks display, as tradition dictated. It was pretty much what you would expect from a town fiesta in the mostly rural Spanish Philippines. Meanwhile, over in Fort San Felipe in the province of Cavite, crickets were chirping as the guards passed the night, at most expecting a bandit raid. I imagine some of the guards were playing cards or talking about the hot Tessarsuela actress in the colony. In other words, it was just another boring night for the guards of San Felipe. Then, at 9.30pm, someone shouted, DEATH TO SPAIN! And native troops rose up in rebellion. Led by a certain sergeant, La Madrid, they started shooting and killing their Spanish officers, including the fort's commander, before taking over the fort. The Cavite mutiny had begun. As this was happening, back in Manila, Izquierdo learned that there was a conspiracy among native soldiers in Cavite to rise up and kill the Spaniards. According to one account, the native lover of a Spanish sergeant showed the latter a group of women next door praying for the success of the conspiracy. Alarmed, the sergeant immediately informed his superior, who then told the governor-general. Izquierdo immediately carried out a surprise inspection of all the barracks in Manila. After making sure that everything was in order, he ordered the commanders in each barracks to watch over the soldiers like hawks. It was certainly a smart decision, as it would later turn out that some of these regiments had planned to join the revolt. No doubt, Izquierdo's visit scared the rebellion out of them. Back in Cavite, the commander of Regiment No. 7 was visiting the barracks when he quickly spotted some of the rebels trying to convince the regiment's troops to join them. Realizing what was going on, he immediately charged at the mutineers while rallying the soldiers. Following their commander, the native troops went into a frenzy and chased off the rebels. Despite the loyalty of native troops in regiments like No. 7, Cavite's military government refused to trust them to report the news about Fort San Felipe to Izquierdo. Instead, they sent three Spanish soldiers to Manila. On the way, however, the Spaniards were killed by several men belonging to a militia of former bandits led by pardoned bandit leader Eduardo Camerino. Nevertheless, Cavite's government was able to send the news by boat, and at 1 a.m., Izquierdo finally learned of the mutiny. He rushed to mobilize Manila's troops to prepare to take down the rebels. At 8 a.m., he sent two regiments commanded by Corporal Felipe Hinobes to Cavite. When they reached the fort, 
Hinovest demanded that the rebels surrender. The rebels' answer? Cannon fire! One would have expected an epic explosive battle worthy of Michael Bay, or at least Robert Padilla. Instead, all that happened was a one-sided barrage of cannon fire, followed by what would be an omen for the mutiny's future. La Madrid, the rebel leader, had been holding a bag of gunpowder when, in an ironic twist of fate, it was accidentally lit when the rebels started firing the cannons. You could say that the rebellion literally blew up in La Madrid's face. Throughout the following day, Hinoves ordered his men not to attack, preferring to avoid bloodshed. Finally, at 6 a.m. of January 22, he decided to make his move. Hinoves gave the call for his men to invade the fortress and they stormed San Felipe. The rebels never had a chance, with Hinoves's native troops slaughtering most of them and arresting the survivors. One of the survivors was a friar that had been visiting the commander, whom the rebels didn't harm, allegedly out of, quote-unquote, consideration for the habit he wore. Within an hour, the Spanish flag flew once more over Fort San Felipe. The mutiny was over. Investigations and interrogations later revealed that more native troops in both Manila and Cavite had originally been committed to the plot, although the Spanish were able to prevent them from going through with it. The truth was that most of the other native troops remained loyal to their Spanish commanders and refused to take part in the mutiny. As news of the uprising spread, panic gripped Manila's Spanish community. For them, every Indio was a possible murderer in disguise, ready to drive their bowler knife into their chests. Despite the fact that most of the troops that fought the rebels were in fact natives, the Spanish community believed that the native army was compromised. Retribution came swiftly. On January 26, 41 of the rebels were sentenced to death, although Izquierdo later pardoned 28 of them. The remaining 13 were executed in Bagumbayan the next day. Subsequently, on February 6, the Council of War sentenced 11 native artillerymen to death, which the governor-general commuted to life imprisonment, believing the artillerymen had been tricked by the rebel leaders. Finally, on February 8, Eduardo Camerino was sentenced to death, while 11 of his men were sentenced to life imprisonment. While some future textbooks and historians would say that the rebellion was caused by the government revoking the native artillerymen's tribute exemption, Izquierdo believed that it was not an isolated incident, but part of a wider conspiracy. He wasn't alone. Both the government and most of the Spanish clergy, particularly the friars, had already distrusted even the most moderate Filipino reformists, whether they were Indio, Insular, or Mestizo. The mutiny only confirmed their suspicions. Even before any judicial proceeding had begun, Izquierdo was already sure that the reformers were responsible for the revolt, writing to the overseas minister 
that he would exile them all to the Marianas regardless of their guilt. A large number of prominent Filipinos, both lay and religious, were either arrested or simply had their mail investigated. Among those arrested were the leader of the secular branch of the Reformist Committee, Joaquin Pablo de Tavera, and Antonio Rajidor, who had returned to Manila from Europe. Father Burgos was arrested along with Father Zamora at the latter's home, while Father Gomez was arrested along with his nephew. Zamora was probably the most unfortunate of the three priests. He had not been heavily involved in politics despite being part of the Reformist Committee. According to one account, when the police went to Zamora's house, they found a note inviting him to an important meeting and reminding him not to forget the quote-unquote polvara y balas, gunpowder and bullets. The soldiers probably didn't know that gunpowder and bullets was a slang term for betting money. In truth, Zamora was a notorious gambler and would spend most of his free time and money on card games and cockfighting. The note came from a peninsular friar, who himself was known for his gambling sessions. Some of the people arrested, possibly through torture, pointed out Burgos as the mastermind of the Cavite mutiny, claiming he would be the leader of the country once it gained independence. One even said that Burgos would be king of the Indios. Of all the defendants interrogated, the only one who confessed to having any direct contact with Burgos was a certain Francisco Zaldua, who was said to have been the instigator of the rebellion and served as state witness. Zaldua testified that he delivered some letters to Father Zamora before heading to Father Burgos's house. He also named Father Gomez as one of the conspirators. For reasons unknown, Governor General Izquierdo was absolutely convinced of the three priests' guilt. Thus, on February 15, a military court sentenced Fathers Burgos, Gomez, and Zamora, along with Zaldua, to death by Garote. First used in Rome during the 1st century BC, the Garote was frequently used by the Spanish Inquisition to execute confessed heretics. An iron collar was placed around the victim's neck, after which the executioner turned a screw-like mechanism connected by handle to the collar. As the handle was turned, the collar would grow tighter with each twist until it broke the victim's neck. One could only imagine the terrible agony of the condemned as his life was literally squeezed out of him. There is actually photographic evidence showing that the corote continued to be an execution device in the Philippines even after the Spaniards were gone. It would continue to be used in Spain and other countries even after World War II. Day, Burgos, Gomez, and Zamora were transferred to a chapel outside Manila, where they spent the next 24 hours praying, making their wills, and saying goodbye to their loved ones.
According to the aforementioned Spanish account, Gomez left his belongings to a son that he had before he entered the priesthood, though I haven't found any other source mentioning him having a son. Izquierdo also ordered the Archbishop of Manila to defrock the three priests, but the Archbishop, who was sympathetic to the secular clergy, refused. Although he publicly condemned their alleged involvement, the Archbishop pleaded for a lighter sentence for the defendants, which Izquierdo refused. As fathers Burgos, Gomez, and Zamora, along with Zaldua, marched into Bagumbayan, they were surrounded by large crowds of spectators. When the four reached onto the scaffold, their executioners made them kneel before reading their respective sentences. Both Burgos and Zamora lost their composure and cried bitterly, continuing to protest their innocence. Father Gomez, on the other hand, appeared calm and without any trace of emotion on his face. The Spanish account claimed that when, at one point, his glasses fell, he just picked them up as if it was the most natural thing to do. He then leaned to the police captain standing next to him and requested that the latter give to the poor some money which Gomez kept under pillow. The first to be garroted was Gomez, followed by Zamora. Burgos, who violently resisted, was next. Finally, Zaldua received his informant's reward, wrapped in an iron collar. In addition to the executions, many Filipino lay and religious were exiled to the Marianas. Antonio Regidor was exiled to Guam. But in 1874, he escaped on an American ship and ended up in Hong Kong, where he joined other Filipino exiles before heading to France. He would eventually receive a pardon for his alleged involvement in the mutiny. Like Rajidor, Joaquin Pardo de Tavera was also exiled to the Marianas before being pardoned, after which he went to Paris, where he lived until his death in 1883. To this day, there are still plenty of questions regarding the Capita Mutiny and its causes. While there's no doubt that the revoking of the tribute exemption privilege rankled the native troops, was it really enough to start a rebellion at the risk of losing their heads? It seems unlikely, especially since the exemption was abolished just 20 days before the uprising, which, considering how many regiments originally planned to join, would have been too soon. Could it have been a culmination of other grievances, such as racial discrimination? Or were there really other elements pulling the strings? It has been a popular notion that the revolt was actually started by the friars themselves, who wanted to frame the Filipino clergy in an effort to get them out of their hair once and for all. This theory partly came from Antonio Regidor, who named several friars as behind the rebellion, even though some of the friars were actually outside the country at the time of the events. Perhaps he was only thinking of some of the more well-known friars in the Philippines at the time who opposed the seculars. Another source came from two Spanish friars 
who were tortured by the revolutionaries years later, which makes their credibility questionable. Did that mean that there was no Friar conspiracy? That the three priests were actually guilty of plotting to kick the Spaniards out of the Philippines despite all three never having a record of breaking the law and only being engaged in moderate activism? It seems just as unlikely. The truth is a bit more complex. The problem is that to this day, the trial records of Burgos, Gomez, and Zamora, which were taken to Spain, either have not been released or have never been found. We may never know what they said at the trial or what evidence was presented to prove their guilt. Until the trial records are found, the true story of the Cavite mutiny will remain a mystery. In the aftermath of the executions and exiles, Spanish distrust of the natives was at an all-time high. I imagine every Spaniard being too afraid of touching any dish served by an Indio, lest it was poisoned. The native artillery regiments were also dissolved, replaced by ones composed solely of Spaniards. It was unlikely that the Spaniards would trust the natives with any cannons or large weaponry in the future. Every Filipino that was a liberal reformist before the mutiny now had to keep his mouth shut and disappear into the shadows. The friars who ran the schools used the mutiny as an excuse to punish Filipino students that took part in the protests. In return, one student quit school and went home after being banned from taking his exams. The Cavite Mutiny of 1872 would have earth-shattering effects on the entire colony. The executions and exiles would open the eyes of a new generation of Filipinos to the oppression and excesses of the Spanish state. Years later, one of the secret passwords of the revolutionary separatist group, the Katipunan, would be Combursa, an acronym derived from the names of fathers Gomez, Burgos, and Zamora. The future Philippine national hero, Jose Rizal, would say that had it not been for 1872, there would be no Rizal. In the late 1860s and early 70s, a group of Filipino activists, albeit mostly insulares and Spanish mestizos, fought for all Filipinos to be recognized as equals of the Spaniards and for their integrity as a people. Years later, it would be a group of mostly Indios and Chinese mestizos that would carry on their work and transform the meaning of what it means to be Filipino. This is Philippine History Z, a podcast hosted by me, Emma Lavinia, with Jose Ampil as producer and Marco Revilla as associate producer. Music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod, Rafael Crooks, Sasha Ende, and Alexander Nakarada, with sound effects from freesound.org. For a full list of music and sound credits, as well as the source of this episode, check out the show notes on the podcast official site, philippinehistoryz.buzzsprout.com. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PHZ Podcast and on Instagram 
at Philippine History Z Official. In the next episode, we will take a closer look at the development of the Philippines from the mid to late 19th century. We will show how the economic boom in the country created a new native upper class that would send their sons to Europe, where they would change the future of the country forever. Once again, this is Philippine History Z. See you in the next chapter.